Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Geography and opportunity have always been linked. Major cities are home to top universities, cutting-edge research facilities, fast-growing startups, and lots of ambitious young people. But the uptick in remote work during the pandemic has many wondering whether urban areas will maintain their economic advantage. Today, I brought in Nicholas Bloom to answer that question and more. Nick is the William Everly Professor of Economics at Stanford University. This summer, he co-authored, along with Tara Kassan, Akash Kalani, Josh Lerner, and Hamed Tahoun, the working paper, The Diffusion of Disruptive Technologies. In the spring, he and Jose Maria Barrio and Stephen Davis released a working paper titled, Why Working from Home Will Stick. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Your paper, The Diffusion of Disruptive Technologies, that we just mentioned in the intro, the, uh, the listeners love when I read. So let me read the conclusion, which I think will make it clear to people why I'm so interested in why um, you've, uh, you've come on the podcast. Today. Policymakers in many parts of the world devote enormous energy to foster nascent technologies, ranging from efforts to support academic research to luring startups from other cities and nations. Such an infant industry strategy is predicated on the notion that early advantages in innovation and employment will yield lasting benefits for regions particularly in the form of high quality employment. Now that, that notion that, that technology hubs matter, that it matters where that stuff happens is, is very powerful. Is it a correct notion? Yes, it is in the short run, uh, less so in the long run. So I just, i tell you what, what we did. We looked at 29 technologies that have come about over the last 20 years, the things like uh, flash memory, driverless cars, uh, electric vehicles, solar power, fracking, RFID, etc. And we looked at uh, the discussions in earnings calls, we looked at in job postings, and we also looked at them in patterns. And we basically tried to, to track out the life cycle of these technologies. And what you see is, uh, initially, when these technologies kind of effectively born and enter the commercial world, Low and skill, high skilled hiring tends to be very geographically concentrated. So let's think of the cell phone. I think Steve Jobs first held one up or announced it in what, 2006, thereabouts. Both low and high skilled hiring for cell phones was pretty much concentrated in Silicon Valley. The engineers were there, but also, you know, the low skilled jobs making it, selling them initially were concentrated there. What you see is these jobs spread out, particularly the low skilled jobs. So within about 20 years, on average for technologies, low-skilled jobs are completely spread out across the country. So you think of cell phones within, honestly, 10, 15 years, jobs, you know, in AT&T stores, repair guys, people using it was pretty much spread out across the country. High-skilled jobs tend to stick more uh, in the place the technology was born, and it takes them about 40 years to spread out. So you can think that even after 20 years, there's still going to be more cell phone engineers out in Silicon Valley, say, than other parts of the country. Is it worth it for a uh, regional government, national government, to try to create hubs in particular areas, particularly um, if they think these areas haven't 
benefited in the past uh, from you know lots of uh, growth and high skill jobs? So great, great question. Um, so you know, I'm going to split it up into: is it worth it, and can they do it? So oh, that 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 was my second question. Assuming it's worth it, can they actually do it? Okay, so let's go to is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yes, in the short run, particularly if your short run is, you know, as a politician is, is maybe five, 10 years out. So if you come up with a new technology, the large majority of high school jobs, many of the low school jobs are concentrated in the county or city or region, it comes out. So in the short run, absolutely, uh, you're going to get a big burst of jobs and money and, you know, investment and firms. We've also been looking at firms and there's evidence of new firm entry and, you know, firms even rehoming, so moving. So think of, you know, a lot of Detroit car companies, US car companies now have opened up offshoots in Silicon Valley because the whole driverless car thing out here. Um, So yes, definitely it's what, you know, in terms of jobs and employment and income, it's worth it. You could worry about, we should come back to how you do it, but of course there's some downsides on congestion and maybe, you know, how much you have to pay to get this. But in terms of employment, you definitely get a clear short run boost for employment in those technologies. The technologies you mentioned um, and the at least short to medium term boost uh, of jobs, were those the results of very smart government uh, planners figuring out which technologies and which places, or was it far more organic? Again, which gets me to my question, can this be successfully done as a conscious, direct, planned effort? As a European, I didn't think I'd ever hear the word smart and government together coming from you, coming out of America. Look, I used to work in the UK Treasury, so I'm in favor of smart government for sure. Um, In terms of these 29 disruptive technologies, 40% of them came out in Silicon Valley and 20% of them came out around Boston, Massachusetts area. So one thing to note is they're incredibly concentrated. In fact, even more concentrated than patenting. So there's something about these 29 technologies, which you can think of as basically commercially successful technologies, are incredibly concentrated in really two parts of the US. So then there are other places, you know, Austin, uh, Colorado, Washington, Seattle, um, other parts of the country. It's not just those two, but those two, Boston and Silicon Valley, are 60% combined. So then if we look in the data, what appears to explain the uh, creation and kind of birth of disruptive technologies in certain areas, Well, universities, just number and amount of research dollars and just endowment size, which is kind of honestly a measure of how rich and wealthy they are. Numbers of PhDs uh, and numbers of people with a degree in the labor market. So effectively, if you have an area that has a lot of research activity going in the university and very skilled labor markets, you appear to have a lot of these new technologies born. Now, the question is, can you create that? I mean, Probably yes. Is it a local government thing to do? Probably, you know, California, it put a lot of money into the UC, the University of California system that generated, you know, amongst other things, Berkeley, which along with Stanford really kind of birthed Silicon Valley. So yes, if I was a government, if you really wanted to have a, you know, a, uh, a technological renaissance in your area, at least from a reading of our paper, but, you know, I wouldn't say the evidence is super strong, but my reading of it would be uh, putting money into developing strong universities for training local grads, undergrads, and also research base seems to probably be the most obvious way to go about it. That strikes me as trying to create sort of a a long-term kind of ecology that if you put these pieces together, kind of a build it and maybe maybe they will come 
eventually kind of philosophy versus we have a plan that over the next three years will radically transform our city. And if you want to do that, maybe what you do is you subsidize a, a, you know, a company to build there or, or, or something. What you, the policies you're describing seem, again, kind of organic, kind of creating the environment for growth and just kind of hoping it happens. Yes, I mean, very top-down industrial policy, I'm not sure has a great track record paying company X to move to place Y. Historically, has not worked out that well. Um, I mean, you can see what's the, you know, there's the big about Foxconn moving out to Wisconsin. As far as I know, they're still negotiating that. There are other angles where, you know, when you mention it, if I think of Pittsburgh, which I think has been a, held up as a successful model for a industrial uh, kind of rebirth of the city, Obviously, they have strong universities. They have Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh. They've also put a lot of money into revitalizing downtown. So coming back to the concept, if you want a lot of grads and postgrads in your city, you want to make the center of town, you know, safe, but fun, you know, enjoyable to live in, good schools, et cetera. So, I, you know, I'm no expert on the exact cookbook. I can just say, if you see in the data, basically a lot of research universities, a lot of graduates are highly correlated, very predictive, of these technologies and so my sense would be that's probably a better long-run plan than trying to you know pay for a bunch of companies to come because you know the track record on that is is not that great you mentioned seattle and if i understand the history that was kind of a, a fluky thing a lot of this sort of the the tech sector up there greatly credit you know microsoft and that's when uh paul allen and bill gates who were down in albuquerque decided to move back home you know, that was a, a, a one-off fluke thing for Seattle. And, and is that what you see in a lot of these places, that there's some um, unplanned combination of events, again, Silicon Valley, a lot of government uh, role in building Silicon Valley, but it wasn't sort of intentional. There's a random element which kind of defies government planning. Yes, exactly. I mean, I read that story. I'm not sure if you also read Enrico Moretti's New Geography of Jobs, but it has a great story about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. I probably stole it from that, right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a fantastic book. So yes, although, you know, you have to, uh, as an economist, uh, you know, as economists, we like to kind of look at the big picture and, you know, look across many, many anecdotes. And so my claim, my belief would be that, look, if Gates and Paul Allen had gone back to uh, Seattle, but it had awful universities, it was, you know, terrible, horrible to live in, et cetera, terrible climate, they may not have stuck there. If they'd stuck, it'd be hard to employ people or hard for Microsoft and subsequently Amazon to take off. So you know, Seattle does have a strong university. It is a nice city. It has a good climate. It's kind of progressive and appealing to graduates. The same is true of the Bay Area. Um, lots of, you know, I'm sure there are many startups that, you know, begin in many cities across the US and some of them grow big and are successful and attract other firms and others probably don't. And I suspect having universities to reach out for, it makes a big difference. I'm obviously, I'm at Stanford University. I live in Silicon Valley and I see amongst my students and fellow faculty members, there is incredible interconnectivity with firms here all the time. People are going in and out of companies and the same is true of Berkeley. Um, so I think kind of the ecosystem that's led in a large part by universities and also the graduates they kick out and tend to stay locally, I think is pretty essential for this. As I may have mentioned earlier, there are a lot of ideas out there to create technology hubs in places where there currently are any. Again, more in the Midwest, what you wanna call left behind areas. We had uh, Jonathan Gruber uh, on this podcast a while back talking about the book called Jumpstart. But the goal was for there to be tech hubs where they're really, where it would be ripe 
uh, maybe they would have a lot of you know college graduates, but currently that hadn't happened. So do you think policymakers can do that? I mean, I understand sort of the political aspect of that, but as far as the goal of actually creating sort of high productivity tech cities and regions that aren't currently doing that, can government do it? So yes, I mean, I heard the point. The podcast, and I, you know, I like the Gruber and Johnson book. I, it, it, in many ways, it's very aligned with what we're thinking. So, yes, I think it's a good idea for the federal government to put more money into technology and research. And you certainly could target a few cities that are, have lots of potential, as in cheap housing, have a reasonable supply of graduates, are kind of appealing to graduates as well, and put resource, resources into that. And if you run it through universities and research centers, I think. You know, it's not going to happen in one year, but I could easily see in five to 10 years, you get startups and spin-off growth. And, you know, you get a kind of similar, uh, a mini Silicon Valley uh, picking up. So yes, absolutely. And that's very consistent with what we find. I think the one thing worth noting is it's not clear you can do it truly everywhere. So to give you an example, you know, Saudi Arabia has poured huge amounts of money into trying to set up, you know, elite universities. And it's hard. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia is not a very appealing place to go if you're an academic is very restrictive. You know, it's not really an environment I personally want to go to. And so within the US, you probably want to think of some of that is going to attract researchers and academics. And, you know, there's a mix of local political climate, crime levels, things like that. That means, you know, in the, in the very worst parts of the country, it may be very hard to get this up and running, take a lot of money. And I think from the Gruber and Johnson stuff, they said, look, here are cities that maybe say Columbus are higher, they're already pretty appealing, already doing pretty well. You can boost these kind of cities and they can really take off. Is it your sense that, that, that there's sort of a, I'm not sure market failure is the right phrase, but I'll, I'll use it anyway, that there's a huge market failure where there's a, a significant number of cities, which on paper, because of because they have lots of uh, smart people there and they have maybe other livability um, things going for them, that should be doing a lot better than they are. So policymakers, government needs to step in? Yeah, so it's a great question. I mean, start, start off, I've been involved in policy on this for many years. And, you know, I know John Van Rien has often said, you know, not everyone can be Silicon Valley because in the UK, we used to meet the UK government and every region wanted to be the next Silicon Valley. So it's Silicon Fen in Cambridge or Silicon Glen up in Scotland, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Partly there is raising the level across the US, but partly there is, you know, uh, only so many places can be a tech hub. So I would have thought, look, within the US, you could easily have one or two more tech hubs, particularly the federal federal government pours or state governments pours a lot of cash into it because you ignite research in an area and effectively you grow America's tech base. It's harder to see how you could have 20 of them without competing within the US. So it's probably not, doesn't make a lot of sense for the federal government to shift activity out of Silicon Valley, too much of it to other places. What it probably makes much more sense is that be additional to say, look, you know, we could increase the spending on universities. Other things that like R&D tax credits actually can work pretty well. So that's something I've looked at and they're quite successful. So you could think of universities plus local tax credits into somewhere, you know, for example, I've been talking to the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they have a big policy about Tulsa remote. It's a pretty forward looking city. There are places like that that are forward looking, that are nice to live in, you could easily imagine having a burst. They're never going to rival Silicon Valley, but certainly on a local level, they could you know, really uh, ignite a startup sector if the conditions are uh, ripe there to start off with. The Silicon Valley that we've seen over the past generation, is that in good shape? And if it isn't, is that important? 
I don't think it's over. I mean, I know that, you know, I read a range of newspapers and the more right-wing ones, you know, because obviously San Francisco is very progressive, don't like it and tend to endlessly predict its demise. Um, it's true that it's incredibly expensive um, and that's a big constrainer on growth. Living out here, I'm not sure personally that, you know, people living here particularly want a lot more growth because it induces density. And so in some ways the market response, which is to put up the price of property, both commercial and residential, is crowding out growth. And so it's not declining, but it's certainly not growing in terms of population. Um, there's still a huge number of startups that are spinning out of here. And I think that's healthy. I mean, we don't want all the startups out of Silicon Valley. It seems a very natural state of things that it's very successful. It's the leading place. It will continue to be so, but there are other hubs. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Silicon Valley is just how it came about, because ultimately it came, you know, a lot of it comes off Stanford and Berkeley and Stanford, the foundation of it is really pretty random. Leyland Stanford, what, 100 and roughly 150 years ago, bought a vast farm out here. And then for you know personal tragedy reasons, ended up bequeathing his money to the university. That's done extremely well. But you know, he could have done that in La Jolla. He probably could have done that in other parts of the country. And maybe, you know, he could have done that up in Oregon. And maybe that would have been, you know, the Silicon Valley. So it does highlight, I think, you know, reasonable climate, maybe, a, you know, good local amenities, but there's probably not, you know, too many things that are essential for having a, uh, you know, tech hub beyond having successful universities. We're all seem to be more comfortable and a lot of companies are more comfortable with people working someplace else. Uh, and which kind of gets me uh, to the, so the second paper, why work, working from home will stick. How much will it stick? So this is with Jose Burr and Steve Davis. Um, so working from home is gonna stick, but more at the extensive margin. So just to explain that, before the pandemic, roughly 15% uh, of Americans ever worked from home for a full paid day. And that accounted for 5% of working days. So basically it really wasn't a big deal. Um, during the pandemic that exploded to 50% of Americans and probably pretty much most people, me, you, pretty much everyone listening to this podcast is probably working from home or at least has for chunks of the pandemic. Question is what's gonna happen post pandemic. The dust is clearing uh, now and it, it's, you know, I talked to, I've probably talked to 100, 200 firms and running a lot of surveys. It seems pretty clear post-pandemic, the setup's going to be hybrid. So most employees, kind of 80, 90% of us that are currently working from home, will go back to the office, say, three days a week and work at home two days a week. So in terms of the extensive margin, will we still be working from home post-pandemic? Pretty much everyone that is now will be post-pandemic. But rather than doing it five days a week, typically we'll be doing it two days a week. And for most people, that's actually a pretty happy, happy medium. They're getting a bit depressed and lonely at home. They want to go in. They just don't want to go in all five days. Uh, from what you found, are people as or more productive? Yeah, so hybrid's basically a win-win. You asked about productivity and what workers want. So I just start on productivity. So on productivity, you know, I kind of got into this by running a randomized control trial on working from home in China. Uh, back, you know, it's 10 years ago now, we randomized volunteers by even and odd birthdays. And you found people that were randomized into working from home for four days a week were 13% more productive. We were amazed. We were expecting the reverse in all honesty, the company doing it, trip.com, basically thought they'd goof off, but thought they'd save an office space. And so it turns out if you look into the data, about 4% of it comes from them being more productive per minute. Uh, and the reason is it's quieter at home. You know, there were amazing anecdotes when he talked to people like the person that told me that the person in the cubicle next to them clipped their toenails at work under the desk. 
said it was really disgusting. It was, you know, so the office is noisy, home is quiet. That's 4%. The other 9% is folks at home just worked more minutes because they took shorter breaks, honestly, shorter toilet breaks, less lunch breaks. They had less delays. You know, the bus didn't break down or the car wouldn't start. So that was that study. There's a lot of other papers out there. Now, Harrington and Natalia have a paper recently I've just seen out of two Harvard grads show a similar finding. There's a number of papers. They're not all universally positive. Gibbs are Alice kind of negative, but I would say the large reading on the literature and our survey data seems to be working from home increases productivity. The thing to bear in mind is there's actually two types of productivity, the short run and long run. So it seems to be particularly helpful for short run productivity, basically doing the same thing you've done before. So in terms of repeating tasks, it seems fine. In fact, if not better doing them at home, because it's kind of quiet and you have more time and you save on the commute. The problem seems to be what I would call long run productivity, being creative and innovative. And certainly from anecdotal evidence, and in fact, we're following up with a RCT in China on engineers now that are creative in terms of developing new products. There's more concern that certainly five days a week working from home could hamper long run creativity. What happens to sort of this people talking to each other, you know, you know, whether it's at lunch, the water cooler, what have you, exchanging ideas. Oh, did you hear about this? And are two days a week enough for that? So what I call the plain vanilla hybrid is three in the office, two at home. So, you know, take app, Apple's ingenious at coming out with simple, easy to understand products as it is with their plan. They said Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, you're in the office. Wednesday, Friday, you work from home. It's there for the whole firm. So then is that enough? Well, it looks like it looks like you need to be in the office for basically bigger meetings, maybe informal chats, coffees, brainstormings, trainings, client events, et cetera, et cetera. But that for most people doesn't take up more than 60% of their time. It seems at home is better for reading, writing, preparing presentations, often one-on-one. So people report one-on-one meetings actually work very well on Zoom. Yeah, it's not really much better in person than on Zoom. Um, so the plan is really take Apple, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, you schedule all of your meetings and events and trainings on those days. And then the Wednesday, Friday, folks go home, they save on the average of an hour commuting each day and it's quiet and therefore they tend to get more done on the quiet stuff on those two days. So yeah, three days in the office is enough. I would be nervous about one day in the office or two. You're right that, that you know, that's trickier. I mean, certainly my concern is that someone starting a job without considerable time in the office just misses out on a lot of sort of understanding the culture, mentoring, uh, all kinds of sorts of soft skills uh, that people gain uh, by being in person over a number of years that a new young employee will have a lot, very hard time picking up. Yes, definitely right. And so the advice is, which I've been giving to firms is for new hires or maybe even people that move positions. For the first six months or year, you could think of them coming in an extra day. So I think, but I used to work in McKinsey and they had, you know, this big training thing for the first year. You can imagine if you joined a firm, you have three days a week in the office and in your first year, you have an extra day, I don't know, let's say Friday and your whole cohort comes in and different managers come meet you. You basically build some connectivity with the firm, have some extra training. But yes, as time goes on, it tends to be easier. I mean, again, remember three days a week in the office is quite a lot. Currently, when we go into the office, we're not spending all the time in meetings and chatting to people. A lot of it is sat in kind of what I call Mad Men style cube, you know, corner offices on your own working. That kind of thing is just better done at home. So the idea is you have your three days in the office, like exhaustingly social. And then the other two days, you know, you don't have to shave. You don't have to put on fancy clothes. 
Uh, you don't have to commute. It's a lot easier. I mean, I'm talking to you here in a tracksuit and T-shirt. I probably wouldn't be wearing that into the office. <laughs> I want to finish off with just a few questions about productivity growth, one of which uh, comes from the conclusion of the working from home paper that, that the productivity gains from working from home may not show up in the official government statistic. And, and let's focus on both sort of the gains from less commuting, but also the gains from me being able to have business meetings without doing as much you know, cross-country traveling. Yeah, it depends a lot, particularly on what you measure in terms of hours. So just to think about it, imagine I used to, you know, the average American commutes one hour a day. So imagine I now work at home. I produce exactly the same amount, but I stop commuting. That time, that prior commuting time is effectively work time. For most people, that's not particularly fun. Uh, but now I'm producing the same amount through, you know, spending five hours less a week commuting. Um, or maybe I just am more efficient at home, but I take, you know, I work a shorter day. So the issue is partly that national statistics don't tend to have, you know, precise measures of hours worked. Most people are down at, you know, their shift hours, whatever it is, and they ignore commute. I think most of the output, though, will probably show up. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I was discussing this actually this morning at length with some co-authors that, you know, in the U.S., we currently have GDP is above pre-pandemic levels, but we have six million less jobs. So, of course, if we're producing more with six million less people, our productivity is substantially up. So the pandemic seen, has seen this surge of productivity, and that's against the backdrop of you know, secularly declining productivity growth. So America's productivity growth in the decade before the pandemic was pretty terrible. It's less than 1%. So is the pandemic a new normal? I would say I'm slightly skeptical. Working from home is great and maybe kicked up productivity you know, 2 3%, but I don't think it's done much more than that. So my guess is some of the burst in productivity we had now were unwind. Some of it is because you can get away with delivering services, frankly, at lower quality. Like, you know, restaurant meals delivered to your home. But once we have to go back in person, well, those waiters are going to get reemployed, but you're going to have the same sales. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an amazing phenomenon. The productivity burst is incredible as an economist because it used to be. If you remember Kidlin and Prescott, that famous paper that... Uh, they won effectively helped them win the Nobel Prize, pointed out how recessions used to be periods of negative productivity, really bad periods. Now we've had a recession, the pandemic, with a huge positive productivity burst. So it's pretty weird. Uh, I wish it would stick, but I'm not that optimistic, I have to say. Beyond working from home, it's hard to think what the pandemic has done to generate such a big increase in productivity. There's sort of this emerging case that that decade, or actually, you know, or more of weak productivity growth is at an end. Uh, we're going to have maybe a decade of much higher productivity growth. I noticed that Robert Gordon, Eric Rudyalson did a long bet uh, on, on this very idea. And you and uh, you co-wrote along with Charles Jones, uh, John Van Reed, and Michael Webb, a fantastic paper about ideas getting harder to find. And we have to throw more resources at those to get those ideas. Do you think that we're going to have higher productivity growth for whatever reason in the decade uh, ahead? And do you think things like AI will, will make it easier to find big game-changing ideas? So I would love that to increase productivity growth. My suspicion is probably not. So one thought is I don't think the pandemic has made it easier to have faster productivity growth. Because in many ways, these game-changing um, technologies, you know, you, we could have, uh, you know, take AI. You could have done AI pre-pandemic. There's nothing about the pandemic that's made. AI particularly easier to use. I mean, maybe you could argue it's made it more appealing to have robots rather than people say serve your coffee, but that incentive is already there. 
in reverse, the pandemic, I know from Stanford University, has been hugely disruptive. It closed down a lot of the labs. Uh, it's still the social distancing capacity is down, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it could be we have a productivity revival. Again, apart from working from home, which is maybe a one-up lift of 2 3%, I don't think the pandemic itself would generate a permanently higher rate of productivity growth. But you know, if we saw one, the most likely reason would be that, look, in 2018, 19, we have all these technologies that were ripe for expansion, AI, computer vision, driverless cars. And finally, you know, you know, the light switch gets turned on or something clicks and they finally take off. I mean, just to set this in the, the course of history, productivity growth was roughly zero, basically, until the Industrial Revolution. And then it start, suddenly starts growing from a roughly zero up to about its peak of around 2% in 1950. And then it's been declining back down since 1950 to roughly less than 1% pre-pandemic. So it can change direction. It just hasn't done that often in history. So I would probably bet against there being a productivity turnaround, but it's not impossible. Have you thought about AI as sort of a, uh, a, a super research assistant as sort of an invention to help find other inventions to kind of get at that idea is getting harder to find. We only have so many, uh, we only have so many researchers, but maybe those researchers plus AI, they will, you know, amplify or complement those researchers and we can find more big ideas. Yes, exactly. You could almost call this like the Skynet view of uh, productivity growth from Terminator. If you remember like, you know, Skynet eventually figures it out and kills all the humans or more or less. Uh, Except killing humans find great ideas. <laughs> So, you know, I think it, the name is Kurzweil. I can't remember the, the guy that did the singularity. I mean, that's the similar. This idea has been kind of kicking around that when computers get good enough, computers will come up with new ideas and then things will explode. It, maybe Ray Kurzweil is the name of the person that came up with singularity. But um, there's been a bunch of studies looking at it. Again, it could be. Um, the problem is often when people look at the micro studies, you often need humans at some point in this chain. So a computer can come up with some great idea, but it doesn't quite translate or it needs to be put in practice. So there's plenty of potential. I don't want to seem too pessimistic, just looking back at what's happened since you know, the development of the uh, personal computer, the internet, et cetera. None of these have really generated dramatic increase in productivity growth. I kind of find it a bit odd, to be honest. I spent a long time trying to figure out why they haven't, but I mean, it's, you know, they just haven't today. So yes, of course, we could have a turnaround, but there's nothing I've seen that says AI is radically different so far. But you know, one thing is true is it's hard to predict productivity growth too far out. So I'd be surprised if there's a radical turnaround in the next five, 10 years. But it, you know, it's like the weather. It's very hard to predict the weather, what, more than two weeks out. So you know, part of productivity growth, I wouldn't really place many bets on you know, 10 years from now because it's you know, AI at that point could honestly have totally taken over or we could be down to zero growth because of, you know, we've, I don't, I don't think we'll ever run out of ideas, but, you know, something nasty down the turnpike could slow us down even further. My guest today has been Nicholas Bloom. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great discussion.